Bibles to Galatians chapter uh, 3. Galatians chapter 3. I will back up to uh, 3 1, but our text is found in verses 6 through 9. So I'll read 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. It has no errors in the uh, original language in which it was given, and it remains to us the authoritative word of God. Listen reverently as I read it to you. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law? or by hearing with faith. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Amen. Be seated. Pray with me again. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful letter that your servant Paul wrote, that you wrote through the pen of, or quill of your servant Paul. We thank you that this is um, what we desperately need to hear. Even if we have heard these words many, many times before, we need to hear them again. Uh, you have, in your good providence, uh, uh, brought this passage before us today. Would you please uh, speak to us through, through this? And would you make us better servants, more faithful servants, more devoted servants of you, our God, as a result of our time spent here together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, all you little children, look up here, okay? So I see all of you little children. Uh, And those of you that are not so little can look up here too. You are your parents' child, right? Not if you're your, if you belong to your parents, if you're your parents' child, you are right. Yeah, all of you children. I'm actually the child of my parents too. We're all our parents' children, aren't we? You uh, probably, to some degree, look like your parents. That's evidence that you're your parents' child. You you have features that come from your mom and your dad. Um, perhaps you talk a little bit like your parents. You might have an East Texas accent, or not, if you're not from East Texas. Like, 
but you talk like your parents. You probably have some ways in which you act like your parents. That can be good or bad, depending on what the ways are that we're talking about. Right? And you also have the same last name, most of you, I think all of you do, as your parents. Right? You're your parents' children, and there's a resemblance between you and your parents, and that's why, uh, that's as a result of being the, the children of your parents, right? You're not anybody else's child. You're not my children, uh, physically. I consider you part, you're in, in, you're in this church family, and so in, in a sense, you, you know, you, you have other people who are part of your family, but they're not your parents. You belong to your parents. Well, this passage is kind of about parenting. Not really, but there's a sense in which it is. In this passage, we're learning about who the children of Abraham is. Abraham, the great patriarch. You all know about Abraham. You've heard about him, uh, undoubtedly, by your, from your parents and Bible reading and Sunday school and in church. Abraham was a very important man that lived many, many years ago. He actually lived 4,000 years ago. But Abraham had children. Now, he had children like your parents had you, but he also had spiritual children. And if you're a Christian today, you're one of of Abraham's spiritual, not physical, but spiritual children. And this passage is all about identifying who are the spiritual children of Abraham and who are not. And I got news for you. You need to be a spiritual child of Abraham if you're not already. In this passage, we'll talk about how you become a spiritual child of Abraham if you're not already. Most of you know the background of uh, Galatians. Uh, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. Uh, Some very um, dangerous things are happening in Galatia as Paul is writing to them. They're a They're a group of professing Christians. I use the word professing because they would have said, oh, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus. Um, They were called Judaizers. uh, And they would give lip service to being Christians, but they were... They had a, a a fundamentally different message than the message that Paul had first preached to the Galatian uh, believers uh, so, uh, at times prior to the writing of this letter. And the Judaizers' message was a false gospel. It was a damning gospel that if somebody were to believe what these men were teaching and trying to persuade the 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 Christians in Galatia to believe. If they, if they ended up believing what these false teachers taught uh, to the end of their life, they would go to hell for it because there would, they would not know Jesus savingly. And Paul under, has heard about this, and he is writing this letter to um, basically to rescue those who are entertaining what these, uh, these Judaizers are teaching. And he's trying to rescue them out of Satan's grasp, if you will. Satan working through these wicked men who were false uh, false teachers uh, with a false gospel. What the Judaizers were trying to do was they were, they were 
perhaps in the church, or at least on the periphery of the visible church. Uh, it's quite clear. Uh, and so they had influence and had, were having conversations with and were probably teaching and perhaps even preaching to people in the church if they weren't actual members of these churches that are in Galatia uh, to whom Paul is writing. So they're on the periphery at the very least. They definitely have influence. And they were trying to convince the folks in these churches in Galatia that Paul's gospel, that they had heard from Paul earlier on, was somewhat deficient, shall we say. And that their gospel, their message that they were preaching, the Judaizing message, was one that was actually the true message that was advocated by the original 12 disciples and apostles of Jesus. You see, Paul was the 13th. So he, he kind of was a Johnny-come-lately, uh, is kind of what they were probably saying, words to this effect, and he didn't quite get the message right. The original 12 had the right message, and we have their message for you, is kind of uh, reading between the lines here, but it's pretty clear that's uh, more or less what the Judaizers were communicating to their audiences. Our gospel is the, is the, is the fully accurate one, so you really need to listen to our are what we have to say. What did Paul teach? Well, Paul taught that justification, which is the beginning of salvation, remember salvation is both a point and a process and something that hasn't happened yet. Scripturally, it uses the word salvation to describe all three things. The point at which you are born again, when you are justified, which is what Paul is talking about here, and anybody who is justified will be sanctified, which is, uh, Paul also uses the word sanctify, uh, salvation to describe the process of growing in Christ-likeness, sanctification, uh, in, in his writings to the Thessalonians. Uh, and also salvation is described as something that hasn't yet happened yet for the Christian. That is glorification in heaven. Uh, and you have to, you have to, uh, look at the context to understand when Paul uses and when the other scripture writers use that word to know what we're talking about. But, but here, Paul is talking about justification, which is the front end of salvation. And by the way, if anybody is justified, they will be glorified. They will also be sanctified. Now, maybe only for a few minutes, the thief on the cross, he believed and didn't have a whole lot of time to be sanctified, but he was. Maybe it was only five minutes. But he grew in his love for Christ over the course of that time frame. Because somebody who is justified is always glorified, sanctified and glorified. Anyway, this is the focus here is justification, uh, which is what happens at the front end when you are born again. And, and uh, Paul taught that justification is through faith in Jesus alone. Trusting in Jesus alone, the God-man whom, he, whom Paul preached, and he alone is how you are, uh, justification means pardoned of your sins and declared to be righteous, uh, perfectly righteous in the sight of God, which happens the moment you believe. You are declared so in the courtroom of heaven. And that's what justification is, pardon and that declaration taken together. And that's what Paul taught. Now the Judaizers, what they taught quite clearly was that justification is through, yes, it's through faith, but not just faith. It's through faith in Christ. You have to believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. That's true. But it's more than that. It's faith plus obedience to the law of, Mo- of God, which was the law of Moses is what they would have said and did, in fact, say. Moses is the great servant of God uh, uh, and the great 
type of Messiah in the Old Testament, one of them. And, uh, and God gave the law to Israel, the chosen people of God, through Moses. And so the law of Moses was, it needed to be kept. It had to be kept for the Old Testament Jew. It needs to still be kept if you're going to be right with God and go to heaven if you're a Christian, is what they would say and did say. In order to be forgiven, you have to be, in other words, an observant Jew who, oh yes, believes in Jesus. That's why they're called Judaizers. They're, they're hung up on, on Judaism, Judaism as they defined it, by the way, not uh, necessarily as the Old Testament defined it. And so, the Judaizers were trying to poison the well, if you will. And now they did get some things right. These Judaizers rightly believed that belonging to God, that is being right with God, meant being a a child of Abraham. They would say, you've got to be a child of Abraham. And the Judaizers, the Jews believed this, and the Judaizers likewise, who claimed to be Christians, they were also saying similar things. They were saying, you need to be a child of Abraham in order to go to heaven. And this is evident, and, and they were right in that. Okay, They were right, as I indicated to the children a moment ago. And this is evident from what the Jews themselves said to Jesus when he wanted to convince them, or uh, they rather wanted to convince him that they were children of God. Um, uh, this is in John's Gospel, chapter 8. I won't bother turning there right now, but they said, we are children of Abraham. And he, uh, Jesus responds with a, indicating, yes, uh, one needs to be a child of Abraham. Look at verses 33 and 39, compare them in John's, uh, John 8. But we're not going to do that now. So they did get that right. You've got to be a child of Abraham. But the Judaizers wrongly believed that in order to be a child of Abraham, um, you had to, to not only believe in Jesus, but you also had to observe all the legal requirements found in the Old Testament, including all the ceremonial elements of the Old Testament law that uh, passed away with the coming of Christ. And this is why the Judaizers insisted that any male Gentile who wanted to be right with God and forgiven of his sins, had to both believe in Jesus and then had to be circumcised. Because that was a sign of coming under the Old Testament law and uh, and all the requirements found in the Mosaic law, including the ceremonial ones. Only then, said the Judaizers, would that Gentile be a true son of Abraham when he was received circumcision uh, only then would that be the case that this Gentile was now a child of Abraham. So one of Paul's foremost goals in writing this letter is to demolish the arguments of the Judaizers with a vigorous defense of the gospel, whose core is justification, the doctrine of justification. And so he does this with particularly devastating effect here in this third chapter. In verses 1 through 5, which I read to you a moment ago, he appealed to the Galatians' own experience as Christians uh, as evidence of the truth of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now here, in verses 6 through 9, he uses the personal experience of Abraham, the father of Judaism, um, to further cement his case that salvation, that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. He tells them that the only true children of Abraham 
are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And he also tells them that the only blessed children of Abraham are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And those are the two points of the sermon. So finally I'm getting around to my points. That was a long intro. First of all, you are a true child of Abraham, a spiritual child of Abraham, which is to be a true child, if and only if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your justification and indeed for your salvation, because even the process of sanctification is by faith alone, uh, uh, as we trust in Jesus for our sanctification through his spirit working in us. But so if you're a true child of Abraham, uh, uh, you are a true child of Abraham, if and only if you are trusting in Jesus alone. How do we know that's true? Well, because of the way in which Abraham himself was made right with God, which is evident uh, in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 15. And uh, it's quoted for us here by Paul in verse 6. He says, even so, Abraham believed, believed God. Believed, in other words, the promises of God. That's what he believed, specifically. And it was reckoned to him, his belief in the promises of God was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now before we talk about Abraham's experience, let me just say a little bit more about Paul's intended audience before I get into Abraham. Paul's intended audience here, he's directing his comments, his what he's writing, at anyone who is... Um, who is sympathetic with, or potentially sympathetic with, the faith plus works message of the Judaizers. So those who were sympathetic already, or who were at least willing to entertain that they might have a point. He's after these people. And hoping to change the minds of those in the Galatian uh, Christian community who had already who were already sympathetic to the Judaizers' teaching and had started believing what the Judaizers were teaching, and he was also hoping to inoculate those who might otherwise be, become sympathetic um, due to immaturity, shall we say, or lack of knowledge, uh, or sinful inclinations. Of course, those who were most likely to be sympathetic with the Judaizers' message of faith plus obedience to the Mosaic Law, were Jewish converts to Christianity, as opposed to Gentile converts. Jewish converts to Christianity were much more susceptible, you see, to this line of thought that the Judaizers were peddling. Um, And now it is almost, it's almost impossible to overestimate the esteem and the respect that the average Jew of Paul's day of the first century had for the patriarch Abraham. He again was the very founder of Judaism. He was the father of all uh, of all the Jews. They looked to him as their great um, forefather, ancestor, through whom they all came and could trace their lineage. He was the first Jew, if you will, even though he wasn't. Judah. Uh, Jacob's son was the where the word Jew comes from, but they wouldn't they wouldn't quibble about that. They say you know Abraham was the the first Jew, um, and so they thought of him as such. Uh, and it's safe to say that other than direct revelation from God Himself 
nothing could have possibly made a greater impression on a first century Jew or a Judaizer or a Jew thinking about uh, uh, thinking about these things that Paul is writing about than an appeal to the experience of Abraham, the prototypic Jew. And Paul knew this, which is why he speaks about Abraham's own experience in order to persuade his audience and get their attention. So, you see, Abraham himself, Paul says, he was forgiven and he was accepted by God solely as a result of his faith in God's promises. And he makes this abundantly clear by quoting from Genesis in verse 6. Again, even so Abraham believed God. He didn't work. He believed God, is Paul's point. The promises that God had given him in the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness by God. Why is this such a key passage in support of Paul's argument against the Judaizers? Why why Romans 15.6? Not Romans, excuse me. Genesis 15.6. Well, Genesis 15.6 occurs two whole chapters before, two whole chapters before God gave circumcision to Abraham as the sign and seal of the covenant. And Genesis 15.6 says Abraham was justified right then and there, long before he was circumcised long before the the sacrament, if you will, the Old Testament sacrament was applied to him. Why is that so important? I think it's fairly obvious. Because as uh, Derek Commentator and his, uh, Pastor uh, Thomas in his commenting on this passage, he writes this. He he said, what is true of Abraham in this verse, meaning in Genesis uh, 15.6, is true of him apart from any consideration of being circumcised. And what does Genesis 15, 6 teach us about Abraham? I've already indicated it. God reckoned that patriarch to be righteous. And this means perfectly righteous, by the way, not just more or less righteous or relatively righteous. He's reckoned him to be perfectly righteous in his divine sight. That's what happened. At that point in his life, about which... Moses is writing in Genesis 15, 6, when he first believed the covenant promises uh, in, in a salvific way. And he was not reckoned to God when circumcision happened to him. That happened later. And his pardon and his right standing before God occurred in Genesis 15, 6 at that moment, about which that chapter is speaking. In other words, he wasn't made right with God on the basis of anything, any works that he had done. Any obedience. Being nice to Sarah. Being a good father to his children. Praying every day. Giving alms to the poor, whatever. Fill in the blank of what good work you want to talk about. All of which we need to do. He wasn't, his standing before God and his forgiveness had nothing to do with those acts of obedience that he uh, 
uh, had engaged in or would engage in. He was, it was not as a result of any good deed that he had done that he was made right with God, including receiving the mark of circumcision or anything else. But it was solely as a result of believing what God had said to him about uh, all the way back when he was in Haran, uh, which is uh, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, and also in Canaan, uh, shortly after he arrived in Genesis 15. He believed all those promises. He put them all together, apparently, at that point in time, and was like, I'm right with God because of what he's going to do through my seed. Who's Christ? 2,000 years later, before he entered into human history. But Abraham was saved because of his belief in the Christ who had not yet come, but was promised, so therefore it was a done deal already if God promised it, because God is always faithful to his promises, you see. And again, what was the nature of the promises that God had made to Abraham, and that he actually believed in? I've already indicated the one, that God would give him not just descendants uh, and make a great nation of them, but he would give him a particular descendant, through whom all the people of the earth would be blessed. He said this back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'll, I'll read that for you quickly. And now uh, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth, again this is Genesis 12, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and will make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will make those who bless you I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the gospel. We are told here in Galatians chapter 3, that was the gospel. You go, how is that the gospel? Because he was saying, you know how you're going to be blessed, uh, Abraham? Through that seed that I have promised you, you, through him, Will bring salvation to the world through the message, or through what he will accomplish on behalf of you and everybody else who believes like you. So that was the first promise that Abraham believed. Uh, secondly, Abraham and his descendants uh, would eventually possess the entire land of Canaan. We read of this in, Ge- uh, in Genesis 15, where he says uh, in verse 18, we read the following. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. It was actually uh, uh, a, um, a confirmation of the covenant that he initially stated in, in Genesis 12. But he says, um, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Ammonite, Amorite, rather, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. In that passage, he's promising Abraham land. Now we know, so those are the two provinces, seed and land. And we know from what Jesus and the writer to the Hebrews said, that God was promising Abraham far more than the earthly land of Canaan, and far more than mere biological descendants from which a nation would come through him, through his loins. He was promising far more than that. 
these promises weren't ultimately physical or biological or temporal. In John 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus informed his opponents that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, Jesus' day, to see, quote-unquote, Jesus' day, and Abraham actually saw it, Jesus said there, and was glad. Of course, he's not talking about his eyes. He's talking about his hope. He hoped for the coming of Christ, and in that sense, he saw the the promise fulfilled by God providing that seed that descended of his, however many years later, he he didn't know it was going to be 2,000 years. My my guess is he probably didn't think it was going to be that long. May have even thought it was Isaac. But at any rate, it wasn't. But he knew that was as good as happened because God had said it. And so Abraham was looking to Jesus, didn't know that was his name, but he was looking to the Messiah and what he would do for Abraham, and he was doing that looking in faith. And that was it. He was trusting God's promise, in other words, that I will say I am saving you because of what I will do through your your descendant. And then, with respect to the land, in the, right of the, in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews says in 11.16, he tells us that the patriarchs, including, of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on, the patriarchs were looking for a better country, that's the language used there, than earthly Canaan. A better country than that terra firma at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. In other words, they were, they were looking for the heavenly Canaan, which was heaven itself. Communion with God for all eternity. And they realized that their possession of the earthly land of Canaan was merely a token. It was a, uh, and a promise from God, uh, a down payment, if you will, a token is a better word, uh, from God of the, their future possession of the heavenly Canaan, that they were going to be with God forever in a sinless, indescribably wonderful state uh, of perfected and glorified state. That's what the Old Testament saints were hoping in. So they were hoping in the final seed, the true seed, and they were hoping in the heavenly Canaan. And that seed and that heaven would only be theirs as a result of their willingness to trust in the promises of God respecting Abraham's descendant and heaven and how to get there. Paul also makes it clear that God was promising to Abraham far more than mere earthly land and biological descendants in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel, there it is, beforehand, 2,000 years in fact beforehand, to Abraham, saying, and there's the quote from Genesis 12, all the nations shall be blessed in you. Notice he refers to, then, uh, I say this again, but as the gospel, that's the gospel Somewhat cryptic, yes. Not full, uh, not fully fleshed out, but in nugget form, that was the gospel. It was a promise about Christ and about heaven. So you see, Abraham 
had essentially, essentially, the same gospel proclaimed to him by God that Paul was proclaiming to the Galatians when he was there. It's essentially the same message. Yes, Paul was said a lot more than Abraham heard, but it was the same message, ultimately. And Abraham received the blessings promised by God in that gospel by faith alone in the promised Messiah alone. And this is why it is only, only those, and children, listen to me, I said to you earlier, you need to be a a spiritual child of Abraham. If you're not, this is how you are a spiritual child of Abraham. You have to trust in the same Savior that Abraham trusted in, and that was and is Jesus Christ, who is God and a man like we are, or human like we are, at the same time. And he still is. He's the God-man. And he's the only way you're going to be forgiven of your sins. And the only way I'm going to be forgiven of my sins is by trusting him to save us from hell. Romans. Paul speaks of this truth in Romans chapter 9, that well-known chapter to many of us who love Romans. And hopefully all of Romans love the whole of Scripture. But Romans is particularly clear in some points, including this one. Romans 9, verses eight, uh, 6 through 8, we read, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He had been earlier talking about how so many Israelites, uh, biological descendants of Abraham, were rejecting the message of the gospel in his own day. The Jews were, many of them hated him and were trying to kill him, and uh, uh, as they had in fact killed uh, the Savior. And, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, this doesn't mean that God is not keeping his promises about Abraham's, uh, uh, about Abraham's seed. And then he says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. There are two Israels. There's one Israel, ethnic Israel, and then there's another Israel, is his point. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children, meaning of God, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, or meaning biological descendants. But, and then he quotes from Genesis 21, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And here's that whole predestination thing. I'm choosing Isaac, not Ishmael. I'm choosing Jacob, not Esau. And he goes on and he says in verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh, the biological children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. And here he quotes from Genesis 18, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And again, that son was Isaac, not Ishmael, through whom the covenant promises would come down through to our day. So here's my question to you. Are you a true child of Abraham? Children, are you, yes, you're the children of your parents that are sitting next to you, but are you also one of Abraham's children? 
Are you believing what Abraham believed, which is what you need to do to be a true child of Abraham? Are you believing in Jesus alone to save you? Do you understand you're a sinner? Do you understand that God hates sin and he hates your sin? Do you realize that? Do you realize that he needs to punish your sin and mine? But do you also realize that God punished Jesus in the place of all those who would trust in Jesus to forgive them, him or her? So if you put your trust in Jesus, Jesus gets the punishment that you deserve, not you. You don't want to go to hell, right? I don't want to go to hell. Nobody in their right mind wants to go to hell. We, we avoid going to hell and we go to heaven by trusting in Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. Very, very quickly, and I do mean very quickly, uh, two minutes quickly. This, this text also teaches in verses 8 and 9 that you are a, not only a true child of Abraham, but you are a blessed child of Abraham if, if and only if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And those words by Paul, again, verses 8 and 9, read as follows. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations uh, shall be blessed in you. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Many of the Jews of Paul's day, the Jews believed, not Christian Jews, but Jews, believed that God would automatically bless them simply on account of the fact that they were related biologically to the great patriarch Abraham. I'm a child of Abraham. You, you know this in the New Testament how the, the Pharisees uh, were fond of saying that and pointing that out to Jesus. Well, it is clear from John the Baptist's words, among others in the scriptures, that it is not the case that because they were biological descendants of Abraham that they were uh, actually spiritual descendants of Abraham. In fact, I'm not going to... I'll very quickly read it. In Matthew, we read this, starting in verse uh, 7 in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel. It says as follows, And when they saw many of the Pharisees, when he, rather, uh, so this is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. He says, You can't say that and uh, uh, with, with what you think that means. Uh, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit shall be cut down and thrown into the fire. Just because they were biologically related to heaven didn't mean they had, uh, to to Abraham, didn't mean they had a ticket to heaven. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. You must be a spiritual child of Abraham, in order to be blessed by God. And if you're not blessed by God, you're cursed by God. 
There are only two types of people in the world. Those who are right with God and are therefore receiving his blessings, or those who are cursed by God and therefore receiving his cursings. Are, 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 wrong, are not right with God, are, 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 are alienated from God and receive his cursings. You must be a spiritual child who acts like Abraham by believing the promises of God. You need, And those promises all are about Christ. He's the only... Uh, savior of sinners. He's the only mediator between God and men. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way you're going to be forgiven. And he has to do it all for you in order to get into heaven. All you do is rest by faith in Christ. That's all you have to do. You have to rest in the true Christ who is Savior and Lord and will be of your life for the rest of your life. Savior and Lord, King, who determines how you live. But, you, but it's only by resting in him by faith. And if you do that, you will be reconciled from the wrath of God and you will be reconciled to God and avoid that wrath and will be heaven-bound and nothing will ever change that fact. And if you are not trusting in Jesus alone right now to save you, but Jesus, and maybe your baptism, or Jesus and the fact that you're a good-looking guy or a good-looking gal or you're... Your whatever people believe in or, or look to, your income, if you're believing in trusting in anything that you've done, you're on the road to eternal damnation. You're on the road to hell right now. If you take your last breath right now, you'll end up in hell. If you're trusting in anything but Jesus, you must trust in Him, the God-Man, the only hope of sinners to save you and to make you forgiven by God and reconciled to him. And only then will you be blessed. And that's, and that's what blessing is, by the way. Blessing is having God as your friend. Being a friend of God, like Abraham was. That's the, that's the quintessential blessing. It's really, ultimately, the only blessing. I'm going to close with this. Some of the glorious blessings, uh, specifically, uh, that flow from uh, being the friend of God are enumerated in our shorter catechism questions 32 and a few of these questions. I just want to read these to you briefly. Just a reminder also of the importance of reading uh, and uh, encourage you to memorize uh, shorter catechism. What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? This is question 32 of the shorter catechism. The answer given by uh, the Westminster uh, framers is this. They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Next question. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. What is adoption? Adoption, and this of course happens, this is a part of the blessing. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace as opposed to an act. This is a work, a process. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. 
And what are the benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? They are as follows. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein until the end. What benefits do believers receive from Christ? More benefits. Do believers receive from Christ at death? That's what's going to happen with you, believer, when you die, if God doesn't, if Jesus doesn't return before your death. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Amen? That's why you don't cremate. It's wrong to cremate. It might be a little strong, but I think it's not the right way for a Christian to have his body or her body disposed of. We need to rest in the ground. That's the biblical example. Plus fire brings to mind unpleasant uh, images. Then finally, 38, and this is the last one. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Or the blessing of Abraham. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Isn't that glorious? That's the way you're blessed with Abraham, the believer. Count your blessings and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your covenant. We thank you, Jesus, for being the head of that covenant, being the party to that covenant, and that you, as the that we are in that covenant uh, through our spiritual union with you, the last Adam. We thank you that because of everything and only because of what you have done, we are made right with you and the Father and the Spirit by resting in your promises and in your work. Thank you so much. You had every right, Lord, to cast us all into the flames. But you didn't want to do that. You wanted to magnify your grace. And you did did so by saving your elect. And you're still saving elect souls. Thank you for saving those of us who are already in the kingdom. Thank you so much for choosing us. We know what we deserved. And we ask, Lord, if there's anyone listening today, either remotely or here in this room, who has never trusted in Jesus alone, be forgiven by you of his sins, to be reconciled to you, to be seen as righteous in your sight, which must be the case if we are to be welcomed by you into heaven. That If there is such a one who is listening who has never done that, would you please convict him and give him a new heart that he might believe like Abraham believed in Jesus alone to save him. 
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with our final. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.